please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verses 9 and 10. Uh, We're continuing in the series entitled, We Are dot, dot, dot. So who are we? And we said the whole purpose of this sermon series was to answer David's question in Psalm 8, which was, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? And this is a really important question to answer because it will lead us into the very heart of the gospel. So answering this question, who are we that God is mindful of us, actually gives us insight into God's heart. So it not only gets, gets us to understand who we are, but who we are in light of God. Now this uh, particular passage in this particular sermon is a bit heavy. Um, I mean, who, who gets excited for a sermon entitled Totally and Radically Sinful? Uh, we want to hear totally and radically loved, totally and radically pursued. Um, but we also, as Christians, need to know that before we get to the good news, the good news is only good in light of the very true and bad news about our nature. And so with that, we're answering the question according to Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Who are we? We are totally and radically sinful. So please hear the reading of God's holy word from Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, uh, this day we want to come before you ready to listen. Um, Maybe our hearts are so hardened because we've been away from you for so long, because we've been caught in sin, because we've just neglected any relationship with you. And so we come and our hearts are, are, are hardened. So Holy Spirit, I ask for those that you would take your word and you would begin to chisel at the hardness of our heart. For those who come with burdened hearts or wounded hearts, through your word, O Holy Spirit, I pray that you would comfort us, that you would heal us, that you would lift off and take off any burdens. I pray, God, for those who come with a heart that is on fire for you, that is passionate about you, that is falling more and more in love with you, that you, Holy Spirit, would continue to kindle that passion and that flame with your word and feed us. So whoever we are, we come before you asking that you would use this time now as we look at Jeremiah 17 for your purposes. Bless us, Lord, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible talks a lot about something called the heart. Now, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not merely alluding to the heart as a source of desire or a source of motivation. In the Bible, the heart is kind of like the control center of a person. It's the seedbed from which everything else rises. So when I say the heart, or the Bible says the heart, it's not simply talking about the way that we feel. Mike Emlett, he's a counselor at the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, he writes this, If the heart is the seat of a person's spiritual moral life, then thoughts emotions, and the will to action originate in the heart. That is, from the heart flow cognition, 
affection and volition, meaning the heart thinks and remembers, the heart feels and experiences, the heart chooses and acts. And this is why the Bible often refers to the heart when it means to refer to the entire nature of a person. So the heart is more than just your desires and your motivations. In Deuteronomy, when God calls Israel, he calls them more than to just physical circumcision. He actually says, Moses writes, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. It's more than physical circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah, when God is describing the new covenant, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. He's going to write the law on our hearts. Jesus in the book of Luke talks about the centrality of the heart. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Basically, this is my point. To understand who you are, you need to understand your heart. But you need to do more than just glance at it. You need to look at your heart deeply. Let me ask you, between when you woke up today and you left the house to come to church, how many times did you look at the mirror? Now, some of you maybe don't want to share that number because it's too much and you'd be considered vain. And some of you may be too little and you should look a little longer. But we look in the mirror, if not for a brief second, we look, why? To make sure that our appearance is okay. Even just a glance to make sure that your hair isn't too crazy, that you don't have, you know, uh, some crust in your eye that's still there or, or some, uh, I don't know, if you drool while you sleep to make sure it didn't, you know, kind of like go over your face. You look just to make sure your appearance is okay. But here's the thing. If you stop looking at a mirror altogether, if you never even look at a reflection that comes in a car mirror or a glass door, then you'll soon forget what you look like. To understand yourself, you need to look at your heart, but you need to do more than just glance at your heart. In order to truly know yourself, you need to look long. I'll admit this. There was a time period in seminary where I was so not interested in dating and relationships. I really, I just didn't look in a mirror for like six months. It was horrible. Uh, and then one day I looked in the mirror and I, and I thought to myself, man, when did I get you know, wrinkles here? And I, I feel like I got three new moles. And I was discovering new things about myself as I looked more and more intently. In the same way, if you just glance at your heart, yeah, you, you may get a sense of what your heart is like. But unless you look deeply at it, you won't actually understand what's going on there. In order, in order to understand who you are, you need to take a look at your heart. And Jeremiah helps us do that. In just these two verses, he helps us do that. And we learn four things about ourselves. We learn that we are deceitful above all things. We learn that we are desperately sick. We learn that we are deciphered by God. And we learn that we are dealt with graciously. And so let's just take those four things as we take a close examination of our own hearts. So first, we are deceitful above all things. Well, Andrew, where did you get that point? Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. In this context, though, although this is a book written by Jeremiah, this is not Jeremiah speaking to the Israelites. He's not angry and upset that they're not listening to him and therefore says, you guys, you are deceitful above all things. No, this is God speaking. 
These are God's words. So this is not man's opinion. This is God's diagnosis. This is God's verdict of humanity. So what does deceitful mean? You got to be careful because if I say your heart is deceitful, you may have a tendency to think, oh, deceitful. That means my heart is dishonest. My heart is um, not truthful. But the Hebrew word for deceitful actually means something more like crooked or twisted or bent which is also a form of deceit when you think something's straight, but it's actually crooked. It's actually twisted. And God is saying this, man's heart is no longer straight and set toward him, but man's heart has an inclination, a natural inclination that's actually different from his original intended design and blueprint. He's created us to be a certain way. Adam and Eve were created in the garden to love God, to worship God. Their heart was to be set toward God. But when sin came in, their heart got bent, twisted. And what they did was God was no longer their true orientation. God was no longer their true north. But all of a sudden they became bent. Actually, they became bent inwards. They were curved in on themselves. So then they looked at God and they say, I want what he has. I want his kind of knowledge. I want his kind of power. And that's why the fruit was so tempting. Because the serpent had promised that if you eat of this fruit, you will know as God knows. So although originally our hearts were meant to be set toward him, our hearts are now warped in a way where we're caved in on ourselves. And this explains our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our self-promotion, our self-satisfying orientation. This is the nature of our hearts. We're bent inwards on ourselves. And some of you may be familiar with the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know which movie this is from, I forget. So I just YouTubed it because there's so many movies now. But if you remember that movie, you know Jack Sparrow has this compass. And there's a scene when he's on the boat and he's talking with uh, Keira Knightley, Elizabeth Swan, uh, Johnny Depp, who plays Jack Sparrow. And, and he says, this compass of mine is unique. And then a fellow passenger walks by and goes, yeah, unique having the meaning of broken. And Jack Sparrow responds, true enough. The compass does not point north. And Elizabeth Swan goes, well, where then does it point? And the camera ominously zooms in on his face. It points to the thing you want most in the world. The compass doesn't point you to true north. It actually leads you to the treasures and desires of your heart. And for some of you, you think, well, this is a great compass to have. It leads me to what I want most. That'll help pay for college tuition, you know. Who would not want a, a compass like this that points to, to the greatest desires and, and, uh, and gives you the direction to find it? And it may sound great, but think about this. What good would that compass be if you're lost in a ship at open sea and you want to go home? You can never go home. You could never go where you're supposed to. You'd be lost. You'd be stuck on this boat in the sea. Why? Because this compass would enslave you. You could only go where your selfish heart wanted to go. You see, your heart, my heart, is just like Jack Sparrow's compass. It's broken. It's supposed to point us to God, to our true north. But in reality, it only points to what we want most, our desires and our idolatries. My question is, do you believe this about yourself? Or is this just really offensive to hear? 
Because I think if you really do search your motivations, you search your agenda, you realize, man, my heart really is deceitful. It's crooked. It's bent inward. I really do think of myself more than I think of anybody else. I seek personal gain. I seek personal satisfaction, personal comfort. I do this above all other things. And if you're not convicted or you're not convinced of this, I think it only proves what this passage is saying. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart lies to you. It tricks you. You're not even aware of the sin in you. You see, the reality of what this passage is saying is that it's not just that my heart is sometimes deceitful. It's not just that my heart is, is it's, it's a little deceitful, but not as bad as other things. No, my heart is deceitful above all things. So I need to be wary. I need to be cautious of what's in my heart. Charles Spurgeon was a great British preacher. He was known as the Prince of Preachers in the 1800s. And he gave this wonderful story about a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. Don't ask me why it was a carrot, but he grew this enormous carrot. And so he took this carrot and he went to the king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And so as the man walked away, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. Well, there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this, and he thought, my, my, if this is what you get for a carrot, what would you get from the king if you brought him something greater? So the very next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading this handsome, big, black stallion, and he bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king wisely discerned his heart and said, Thank you. Took the horse and dismissed the man. The nobleman was perplexed, and he began to object. So the king responded, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Have you ever done this to God? From the outside, it looks like you're honoring him, worshiping him, doing things with true motives and true intents, when deep down inside, you were really just doing it for yourself. You were giving only in order to receive. This is the selfish nature of our hearts. If I can make a personal confession, I wrote and I shared in the email this week that I was at the PCA General Assembly, 1,300 pastors, a lot of well-known pastors. And I found myself being tempted in talking with people, going, am I asking how you're doing and how your church is going only so you will think well of me, so that you'll remember me, so that maybe um, you'll think, oh, Andrew, he's a great guy. I should invite him out to come speak at my church and fly him out to California so he can eat in and out oh, and preach, but, uh, you know, <laughs> um, eat, eat burgers. And I was wrestling with that in my heart. Am I really doing this to love a brother, to hear about how God is working in the church, how, how God's kingdom is growing? Or am I doing this secretly, actually bent inward on myself to leverage, to gain? 
You see, our heart often lies to us. It tricks us so that we mask our selfish ambitions and desires for self-glory. And we do this in the name of you know, doing things for others or doing it for God or doing it for the greater good when we're really just doing it for ourselves. So that's the first thing we learn. The heart is deceitful above all things. Secondly, we learn this, though. We are desperately sick. So look with me again at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the word desperately sick can also be translated incurable or without cure, beyond cure. And that's a prognosis you never want to hear. Being desperately sick means that you don't just have a slight or minor condition. God is not saying that you have a common cold or a stomach virus, and if you just wait a little bit, things will be okay. You'll get better. No, this word implies that you have something inside of you that's killing you, and there's no escape from it. You see, in Hebrew poetry, there's something called parallelism, where basically um, the author gives a line, he gives line A, and then he gives a second line, B. And it basically says the same thing as A, but it actually makes the point stronger. It puts greater emphasis. And that's what's going on here. So verse 9, your heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart is twisted. Your heart is bent inward. Even more, your heart is desperately sick. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no cure for it. There's no fixing it. So who are you? You are sick with an infection of sin that plagues you. The disease of sin is not merely that you perpetually commit sin. That is, what, that is part of the disease of sin. Not only that you perpetually commit sin, but the scary reality that you actually enjoy committing sin. You derive great pleasure from the very thing that kills you. So we feed our sin, don't we? We tuck our sin into bed. We read it a bedtime story. We hold its hand. We keep it you know, warm at night. And because you pamper sin, because you actually enjoy sin, it continues to grow in you, healthier, stronger. You're feeding at protein shakes. And before you know it, this sin is so big and powerful in your life that you cannot resist or kill it. That's the real sickening thing. Not only that we sin, but we love to sin. Does sin excite you? Does sin get your heart racing? You've caught yourself about to sin, maybe say something you shouldn't say, and then you think to yourself, I shouldn't say that. This is sin. I shouldn't, this is gossip. I shouldn't do it. But then there's that part of you that says, but it would be so nice to just say this. And the reason that it's pleasurable, the reason that it's satisfying, because our hearts are infected. It's like your taste buds were altered so that now as you drink poison, it tastes good to you. So that that which is bad now tastes good, and that which is good now tastes bad. Holiness, righteousness, godliness, these things don't taste good to us. Good things no longer taste good. You know what the worst things that I can do in the morning is? When I brush my teeth, and then I drink a glass of orange juice. Have you ever done that? I love orange juice. It's amazing. It's nectar of the gods. But if you brush your teeth and you drink orange juice, that nectar of the gods becomes something very disgusting, very gross. And that's what sin does. It changes our appetites. In fact, it changes our appetites believing, saying, my will be done is better than saying, thy will be done. St. Augustine, he was an early church father. He existed in the, about the 4th century. And he wrote an autobiography that he called The Confessions. 
And in it, he gives us a glimpse into his heart. And he meditates on this particular childhood memory where he says, as an adolescent, him and his friends used to sneak into the neighbor's vineyard and they would steal bushels of pears. And he writes, we took away an enormous quantity of pears, not to eat them ourselves, but simply to throw them to the pigs. And Augustine goes on to explain that he didn't steal pears because he was hungry. He didn't steal pears because he was in need. In fact, he didn't even like pears. And this is what he writes, that he took them because his real pleasure, my real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden. Knowing it was wrong gave me great joy in doing it. And he concludes this way. The evil in me was foul, but I loved it. You see, the disease of sin is not just that we sin, but that we love sin. That's sometimes like you are walking in Chinatown, if you've ever been, and you smell something, and it's a bad odor. But there's a weird sickness in you that just wants to take another sniff. <laughs> just, just, is it really that bad? You just want to sniff it one more time. And that's why God rhetorically asks, who can understand it? Who can understand your twisted heart? Nobody can understand it. But we need to learn to be students of our own hearts. We need to try to understand it. Understand why we fall into certain traps, when we fall into certain sins. So you need to ask these questions of yourself. Why does my heart love and enjoy sin so much? Why why is this sin better than my purity? Why are these words that I'm about to utter better than my holiness? Why is this thought that I'm entertaining better than my righteousness? Why is this action and behavior of mine better than my godliness? Why do the sins that I find myself covered in, these sins that I keep coming back to, these sins that I'm so ashamed of, why are these sins better than honoring my God and my Savior? Why? And when you ask these questions in light of the Word of God, you get a better understanding of yourself, of your heart's sickness, of its brokenness. My question is, are you a student of your own heart? You know, C.S. Lewis was a great student of his heart. He wrote a book in the 40s entitled The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, I do recommend it to you. And the unique thing about this book, The Screwtape Letters, is that it's a, a series of 31 letters written from a perspective of a senior demon named Screwtape who is writing these letters to his mentee named Wormwood, who's like a junior tempter. And the point of these letters is to teach Wormwood how to undermine people's faith and how to promote sin in their lives. So these letters that Screwtape writes to Wormwood are basically like teaching manuals on how to tempt and destroy Christians. And as a result, as you see, as you read the words of Screwtape to Wormwood, you actually see that C.S. Lewis had uh, made great observations on human nature and the dynamics of the human heart and how we fall into sin and are led into temptation. He knew the heart so well. So after that book came out, a second edition came out. And in that second edition, C.S. Lewis writes this at the way beginning before the book begins. He says, many people, since I've written this book, many people have complimented me because they have thought I spent many years studying and researching to get the insights of the dynamics of the heart. Many people wrote, Dr. C.S. Lewis, dear Mr. Lewis, you did a great job, and we appreciate all the fruit of your labor and studying. And, but this is what he writes. He goes, I didn't deserve those com- compliments. He, 
In reality, C.S. Lewis writes that he didn't come to understand the way temptation worked by reading philosophy and sociology and psychology and anthropology. He said, the only way that I came to understand the way temptation worked was I looked at my own life. He writes, my heart showeth me the wickedness of the ungodly. I need no others. How did he write this great book on how your heart falls into sin and falls into temptation? He didn't read a single book. He looked inward. He looked inward. All he needed to do was take a good long look at his own heart, his own deceitful and desperately sick heart. And so my question to you is, have you become a student of your heart? God is rumbling in heaven. (laughs) He's asking you too. (laughs) Have you sat down for tea and conversation with your heart? Have you locked it up in a room and sat it down under an interrogation light and began investigating your own heart? And you do this, of course, when you go through regular times of prayer and meditation and silence and solitude But the reality is, a lot of you, like me, are so scared of doing this. You're scared to actually pause and take the time to meditate and focus on your heart because you're scared of what you're going to find. You know, even now, I am aching in my teeth. Almost two weeks ago, I had two wisdom teeth and a molar taken out, and it still hurts. And even though it hurts, actually, I need to go again. I need to get a root canal done, and I need all these other procedures. And why am I in this position? You know, people have, like, fears of all sorts of things, clowns, and I don't like dentists. <laughs> I fear dentists. And so for years, I refused to go to the dentist. But after years passed, I realized, man, years have passed. And now I'm even more afraid to go to the dentist to see what's messed up here. So for another few years, I didn't go until the pain was so constant, it would wake me up at night that I said, I need to go. I'm in this position now only because the cavities had spread and it was way too late. My teeth couldn't, you know, I think by next year I'm going to be wearing dentures. But uh, There can be great fear in examining your heart, and so you want to put it off. And you want to put it off because you're scared that if you open up your heart, you're not going to see, you're going to see what cavities have spread. But God is telling you, and here's doing you a favor. He's telling you, your heart is desperately sick. You need an examination. Third, we learn that we are deciphered by God. This point will be shorter because it's similar to last week's sermon. But if you look at verse 10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Meaning that there's nothing in your heart. There's no motive, no agenda, no mystery that God doesn't see and he doesn't understand. So when God asks the question, who can understand your heart? He's asking because his answer is not you, but me. I can decipher and I can Figure out the the riddle, the mystery that is your heart. We talked a good bit about this last week in Psalm 139 where David prays the dangerous prayer. Search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. And here God says simply, I search the heart. I test the mind. Meaning there's no place where you can go where your secret sins will remain hidden. There's no place you can retire and escape where the Lord does not know and see your thoughts and your desires. 
Where can you go where he is not there? What can you do that he does not know about? And CB, I shared this quote with you. Herman Boving, a great Dutch theologian, my favorite theologian, writes this. When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart. There you meditate. God is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. He is more inward than your heart. Why? How? Because he searches the heart. He is the great investigator. Now, how does that make you feel? To know that you are under the searching eye of God who looks at the nooks and crannies. There is no stone unturned. And all those times that we think the deceitfulness of our heart are out of the sight of others, they are right before the Lord. Whether committed in the furthest corners of the earth or in the secret chambers of your heart, it's impossible to escape God because there is no lock that can keep him out. There's no password that can block his access. There's no delete button that erases things from his mind. There is no secret that he does not know. There is no mystery that he does not understand. There is no heart that he does not search. And there is no mind that he leaves untested. So friends, if this really is who God is, and this really is the condition of your heart, then you really should run away from him. But where can you go? So although as crazy as it may sound, we do not run away from this God, but we run to him. And you think, well, that's crazy. That's crazy. When I would bring home C's on my report cards, my parents wouldn't see me all day. I was running away until I was found and discovered. Yet what confidence would you have to know your sin and come before the God who searches you? And that's our fourth point. We are dealt with graciously. At the end of God's investigation, look at verse 10 with me. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God promises to deal with us according to what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. Now, that's not a good thing. That's a scary promise. Would you feel comfortable sharing with the person next to you everything that's going on in your mind and in your heart? Would you feel comfortable sharing in front of this congregation as a testimony? If I asked you next week, come up and share with us all the things on your mind and your heart, would you feel comfortable? There are so many sources and pockets of secret shame in our lives committed by us, committed against us. We have a mental log of thoughts and judgments that we keep locked up, don't we? Certain things we've done that we guard more heavily than even the gold at Fort Knox is guarded. And so God here is saying, I'm going to not only search your heart and test it, then I'm going to give you according to all that you have done. 
And that's a scary thing because in his courtroom where perfect justice reigns, he's going to deal with your heart, your inward, bent, self-focused heart. He's going to deal with your heart that lacks grief at sin, that lacks sorrow, that has no bitter tears that have been wept over sins committed against them. God is saying, I'm going to deal with you according to your ways. And if you think about that long enough, you know what imagery comes to my mind? If I think about God promising he's going to deal with me according to my ways, I imagine a huge tsunami that is of uncontrollable power about to come crashing down on me. And yet when I expect the worst, because that is what my sin deserves, the reality is that that crashing wave, that crashing tsunami does not fall upon me, but it becomes a gentle tide that pulls me and drags me into an ocean of grace. Because the reality is that God has dealt with your sin. He has given the punishment that is in accordance with everything wrong you've done. Except he has poured it out on his son. Jesus Christ who has died in your place. And so instead of dealing with Jesus according to the ways Jesus should have been dealt with, he deals with Jesus according to the ways that we should have been dealt with. God deals with Jesus according to the punishment you deserved, according to the transgressions and errors that you have done. He deals with Jesus according to your selfishness and your inwardly bent ways. This man who knew no sin... The only person to have ever walked this earth in a completely unselfish manner. The only person whom God searched, God tested, and God found to be truly blameless and righteous in all his ways. This man received what we deserved. And we receive what he deserved. Riches, Rewards, righteousness. And receiving now what Christ deserved, when God deciphers your heart, when you are under God's microscope, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your unrighteousness, he doesn't see the filth and the junk. He sees a heart that's been washed clean and healed by Jesus But here's what you need to understand, because to understand the depth of God's grace and his love for you, you need to ask, well, why did God send his son for me? Why did God choose to deal with his perfect son as if he had committed my sins? And why does God choose to deal with me as if I had lived the perfect life Jesus did? You see, when you and I were totally and radically sinful, listen, this is the most important part I could say. When you and I were radically and totally sinful, God did not send Jesus to make us lovable. God did not wash us clean so that he could then accept us. God loved us even when we were nothing but deceitful and desperately sick. And even when he deciphered our hearts and saw that there was nothing but hostility against him and every fiber of our being a resistance to him, even then he loved us. And it was out of his love that he gave us his son as a sacrifice so we could love him in response. 
But knowing that God has loved us even when we were yet sinners does not for one second prove that God is okay with you staying in your sin. In fact, as much as the sacrifice of Jesus for you, as much as that proves that God has love for sinners, it also absolutely proves the hatred of God for the sin in you and me. So you need to know this about the gospel. It doesn't just offer you forgiveness for the sins that has infected and twisted your heart. The gospel doesn't just offer forgiveness. The gospel also transforms you to hate the very sin in your heart because you now want to hate what God hates. The sin that you loved before, the sin that brought you such joy and satisfaction, when the gospel is working in your life, it will become increasingly disgusting to you. Understanding who you are, who you were, and who you are now in Jesus Christ, how God has graciously dealt with you, this gospel changes your appetite. It changes your taste bud. The Spirit straightens out the bent shape of your heart. And God becomes what you want most in this world so that your heart now begins to point to him. In fact, to say... Who are you? Who are we? We are radically, totally and radically sinful. That's actually only half true. Because those who are now in Christ have a new identity. Those who are in Christ are not just those who are totally and radically sinful, but graciously and generously dealt with. Let me close quickly with three things. What does this mean? First, Ask God to deal with your heart. Hear the caution and warning. You see this on commercials. Don't try this at home. If your heart is bent inwardly, it's badly infected, then there's nothing you can do to change your own heart. If you can't perform a physical heart surgery on yourself, don't even try performing spiritual heart surgery. Ask God to deal with you. Second, if you're convicted of your sin and I hope you are, run to God who deciphers you because in Christ you will be dealt with graciously. Don't run away from him. There's no place of escape. Run to him in repentance and he will respond with refreshment in the cool waters of Christ's grace for you. Run to him because that's better than running away. And third, trust in the gospel alone for transformation in your life and a new desire to hate sin and love God. Only when you understand that you've been dealt with graciously by a God who loves you but hates your sin, only when you understand that will you ever develop a palate and an appetite for God and an increasing dissatisfaction with the cheap, bland flavors of sin. It's not gospel and grace to forgive and your effort to change. It's grace that saves and grace that sanctifies. So through Christ, you've been given a new heart. Your heart beats now for God. And yes, sin is still present. Its dominion is broken, but it's present to try to bend you, pressure you into curving inward on yourself. Yes, sin will remind you, hey, I was a poisonous power in your life. But it's a poisonous power that is on its way out, and Christ is in you. The gospel changes who you are. 
It changes the answer to the question we've been asking. Who am I that God is mindful of me? I was totally and radically sinful. But in Christ, I am graciously and generously dealt with, accepted, loved, and forgiven. This is who you are. This is who you are. Pray with me. Father, I know in speaking from first-person experience, just the waywardness, the deception that is found in this heart of mine. I don't know the hearts of my friends here who are gathered today, but I imagine that they are in a similar boat with me. Father, as we increasingly become aware of our own sin, as we learn about new sins in our lives, it amazes us to know that that's not new to you. That's not news to you. You knew us in every way of our sin, of our sickness, of our deceitfulness. And yet you loved us. And yet you loved us. You didn't forgive us so that you could love us. You loved us in our sin, so you sent your son to die for us. I pray, God, that as we understand that, as that gospel truth melts into our hearts, as it fills our veins, our arteries, the aorta, all the chambers of our heart, as it fills our hearts and fills us, that we would begin to change our appetites, to long for the things you long for, to hate the things you hate, and that in turn causing us to hate our sin and to love serving you and obeying you. God, we open ourselves up to your invitation to investigate us. Come, search me, God, know me, test me, try me. I can ask that because my confidence is in Jesus. That you have dealt with him according to my ways and you will deal with me according to his ways. So Lord, we respond now with our songs of, of confession. We ask, God, that you would help us to know this gospel truth more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the Father Almighty, who loved us even in our sin, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who helps us to know and to love and to apply and to cherish the gospel that transforms us transforms our hearts. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the dismissal. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Go in peace, friends.